if the people that made the music aren't around, then it should just go away. But, you know, they didn't say that about Mozart or Bach, you know, like, I don't know if the Beatles are the new Bach or, you know, if this stuff will live on like that. But, you know, if, if people want to hear it and there's an audience out there that's going to buy a ticket for it, then it's going to be really hard to argue against that. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with music writer Stephen Hyden, whose new book Twilight of the Gods mixes memoir and criticism to explore the past, present, and future of classic rock as its aging superstars are beginning to die off. I actually listened to classic rock radio for most of my teens, and while I enjoyed and continue to enjoy the format, which mixed 80s acts like U2 and Van Halen with older bands like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, I've come to realize that radio stations really dictated the way we all consumed music in the 1980s, especially if, like me, you didn't have access to MTV. In retrospect, it feels like classic rock as a category is a weirdly conservative way to package music. In fact, a lot of the acts now associated with the 1980s, everything from The Cure and The Smiths to NWA and Public Enemy, didn't get much radio airtime when that decade was actually happening. Which means that, for me, a lot of my musical memories of the 1980s are pegged to bands that actually came out in the 1960s or 1970s, bands like Pink Floyd and The Doors and The Eagles. So I guess when we talk about classic rock, we aren't just talking about the music of a certain era, but how that music was packaged and marketed during that era which is something Stephen Hyden and I unpack in the interview. I actually discovered Stephen's writing back in 2010 when he wrote a series about 1990s music entitled Whatever Happened to Alternative Nation. And what I've always liked about his writing is that it makes you feel like you're hanging out with an insightful and opinionated friend who can get to the heart of just what it means when we listen to certain kinds of music. So at a time when aging acts like Black Sabbath and the Rolling Stones have recently done farewell tours, and iconic rockers like Tom Petty and David Bowie and Malcolm Young have passed away, I was curious to get Stephen's take on where classic rock has been, how its definition has changed over the years, and what its legacy might be in the future. Let's listen in. I'm curious to know, just to sort of set the stage, what is classic rock and where did it come from? Well, you know, that's a big question in the book, you know, because classic rock is an amorphous term. You know, it doesn't really mean anything specific. It's not like an actual genre. You know, it started out as a radio format uh, in the early 80s where, you know, people in radio decided, you know, with some market testing to codify a generation of bands as classic rock. And, you know, it wasn't all bands from the 60s and 70s. It was sort of bands that had a certain level of commercial success uh, that, uh, you know, had a mainstream visibility uh, to them. So, I mean, certainly like in the original incarnation, it was bands like the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, basically like the big arena rock and stadium rock bands of the 60s and 70s. Um, As time has gone on, And, you know, there have been other demographics that have sort of aged into middle age. The definition has expanded a little bit where, you know, for a while it was sort of unusual to hear appetite for destruction on classic rock radio or the Joshua tree. And then that became normalized. And now you'll hear uh, 90s alternative rock, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, Pearl Jam, Nirvana. 
that's been absorbed into the classic rock umbrella. I tend to think that it ends with the 90s because that marks a transitional point for rock music where once you get into the early 21st century, this the type of sort of ubiquitous rock bands that existed at the you know like the latter half of the 20th century like it just becomes less common and you know i'm kind of curious to see if in 10 years you know if there's still classic rock radio stations if the white stripes will be absorbed into that or the strokes you know i i have some doubts about that but it it, it may happen you know it, it may be something where there's just something new like where that's sort of turned into something else like where maybe just like 2000s indie rock becomes sort of like a fun attractive you know older format for people to listen to or or like that becomes like the playlist that older people gravitate to and maybe it's separate from classic rock um it feels like there's a lot of retrospective assimilation like i remember um and of course radio is so central to all of this because my it's classic rock was sort of the water I swam in. You know, I, I felt like I chose it, but it was either that or the pop rock station or the country station. Right. Um, and so it felt like I was making sort of this transgressive choice to listen to classic rock when when actually, as you point out in your book, it, it was sort of a decision and it's, and it's a strangely conservative form, even to the fact that like when Nirvana finally started leaking into classic rock maybe in the mid nineties, then suddenly you also had like ride the lightning era Metallica and uh, like 1988 era Jane's addiction playing on classic rock too. So it feels like it it assimilates retrospectively. Well, and I think in the nineties too, there was um, a very clear link between contemporary music and classic rock that a lot of the classic rock artists, like they weren't that old yet. So some of them were still making hits. Like when I was a kid, ACDC and Aerosmith, were in Van Halen. I mean, they, they were on MTV. They were, they were playing at the MTV video music awards, like the famous 1992 VMAs, the one where Nirvana played lithium and Chris Novosella hit himself in the face with his bass, like he threw it in the air. You know, the, the band that won video of the year that year was Van Halen for, for right now, you know? So there was a little bit more of a crossover. Also like the bands of that era were more sort of, unapologetic about being influenced by that stuff where, you know, Pearl Jam made a record with Neil Young and Nirvana covered David Bowie. And so if you were into alternative rock, there was a very clear pathway into that stuff. And now, you know, there's still like, you know, if you listen to a lot of indie rock there, there, you can draw clear lines between a lot of indie rock bands and classic rock. But in terms of like mass appeal music, you know, there's not really like a strong continuum to classic rock. You really only hear it in sort of like sideways glance type ways, like where Beyonce, you know, samples the doors or Frank Ocean will sample hotel California where it's almost like a postmodern type reference to it. It's not like a direct lineage the way it was back then. Um, Although again, you know, you, it's funny how these things continue on though. I mean, I, I keep using this example, but you know, one of the uh, sort of young rock bands that like a lot of people in the music industry think is, could be a pretty big band 
in a few years is Greta Van Fleet. You know, this hard rock band from Michigan. Sounds a lot like uh, Led Zeppelin, right? Exactly like Led Zeppelin. And all the guys in that band are like in their early 20s. Uh, you know, they were born like when Paige Plant were, were touring, you know, like that. that, And yet they still are, are listening to that stuff. And you still see kids go through, you know, like if you go to like a, like a head shop in your town, you still see the black light posters for Led Zeppelin and, and Pink Floyd and Bob Marley and all that stuff. So there's still like a counterculture of like young kids who, you know, maybe when they first start smoking pot, they're like, well, we have to listen to dark side of the moon. It's almost like a ritualistic thing or, or something. Um, so it stays alive in that way. But yeah, I mean, I think in general though, like the pop culture of now, like with with young music, I don't think there's as much of a connection to classic rock as there was when I was growing up in the '90s. I wonder if that if that narrative aspect, to in a sense, will will keep this older music alive. I mean, just just the idea that there's the music dark side of the moon, and then there's the ritualistic um, sort of stoner initiation aspect of dark side of the moon. Um, and of course, Led Zeppelin has has all of its uh, selling its soul to the devil mythos that goes all the way back to Robert Johnson. Um, and I like you touch on this a little bit in in your book, but I'm curious uh, about how much of this is about the music itself versus versus the mythos, you know, versus the the aura of this music. Well, I mean, I think the music is definitely, I mean, the best of classic rock is it's i mean it is great music i mean there there were a lot of you know i I think certainly for rock music i mean it was the the period of like the greatest innovation and there was a confluence like of a lot of really great songwriters great producers and, and and great musicians who came together at a certain time to create that music but you're right i mean a big part of my book is talking about the mythology of classic rock and you know, whether it's talking about the album being this sort of totemistic thing that like holds great truths, you know, and that this is like the equivalent to the novel or, or, or a film, you know, that this is something you need to analyze and take very seriously or like the mythology of, 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 of rock shows and all the ceremonial stuff that goes on with that, whether it's in the parking lot or, you know, the encore or, uh, you know, all the stuff with live albums um and all the great stories that you hear you know like when i was a kid and reading hammer of the gods by stephen davis the led zeppelin book and by the way the title of my book is an homage to stephen davis because hammer of the gods was like a huge book for me and you know there's a lot of um you know the members of led zeppelin have talked about how that book is basically bullshit that there's you know a lot of exaggerations they claim that a lot of things that didn't even happen are in that book but whether or not that book is factual or not as a piece of mythology not just for Led Zeppelin but for rock and roll in general I mean it it really was sort of an invaluable document you know like like if you wanted to be schooled in the importance of sex drugs and rock and roll like that was a book to read yeah I mean I think the idea of of this music sort of being larger than life and being something that felt eternal. Like it felt eternal to me as a teenager, even though, you know, it was only like 20 years old, 
but when you're a kid, that seems like forever ago. And compared to the pop music that I was listening to, or, or you know, that was like the first music I, I listened to was Top Forty. You know, there just seems something kind of deep and mysterious and enigmatic and sexy and mysterious and scary about classic rock. And I'm I'm curious in in the in the actual experience of music. You've talked about concerts, but then there's also there's this idea that um, the classic rock era was a big album era that you would put the platter on the turntable and you would listen to it and look at the liner notes. Um, my background was so frugally Midwestern that I didn't get many albums. I spent a lot of time just listening to the radio, which is the other big arm of classic rock, um, and taping songs off the radio. Um, and it feels like, I think part of this conversation and part of what your book touches on is how things have changed. Um, and it occurs to me that a lot of songs that I might I guess just like you, you will listen to minor songs on an album just to get to your, your favorite songs in the same way that if you're taping songs off the radio, you'll listen to, to a, you know, 12 songs you don't really care about before you get to the song that, that you do tape. Um, and so I'm just curious if, if you were a, if you were a rate, if you were a live radio taper when you were young and how this aspect of interacting with music has changed. Yeah, I definitely was. I used to totally tape songs off the radio. And, uh, you know, it was a, a situation where you would have to listen like for hours to hear a song, especially on classic rock radio. I mean, classic rock playlists are fairly uh, stagnant. You know, I mean, they kind of play the same songs all the time, but you would still have to wait longer to hear certain songs than you would on the on the pop station. You know, like when I was you know, 10, like when I was like nine or 10 or something, I would listen to the top 40 station and I would tape songs like listening to like American top 40, you know, Casey Kasem. So you could kind of anticipate like when songs would come. Cause it's like, well, I knew this song. I know this song was at, it was at like a number 13 last week. So if I tune in around that, I can probably get it, you know? So that was always an easy way to, to get songs. Um, but on classic rock radio, if you were like, Oh, I, I heard this song the other day. It's Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. And like, that's not one of the Rolling Stones songs that gets played a lot. You know, it's not Jumpin' Jack Flash or Satisfaction. So like, I just remember listening to the radio for hours back then, like for three or four hours. Like I would just be in my room, like on a Friday or Saturday night doing whatever, like reading or, uh, just hanging out and just would have the radio on the whole time. And, uh, you know, now it's hard to even imagine doing something like that. Certainly not listening to the radio that long, but listening to like a playlist that long is, uh, sort of amazing because it's like, you know, a playlist presumably has songs that you like, you know, on it. But like listening to even music that you like for three or four hours is kind of exhausting. You know, like after an hour or two, usually for me, like I need to take a break or, you know, do something else. But the idea that you didn't know what was coming would kind of keep you in there longer, you know, because it's like, well, maybe they're going to play Gimme Shelter at some point. So I got just I was hanging a little bit longer and I'll record it if it comes on. 
I think, you know, like I hear songs that you sort of characterize as this second tier um, level of rock. I hear like Journey songs and Boston songs and REO Speedwagon songs now that I that I sort of feel sentimental for and can even get excited about if I if I hear them by accident. Uh, and I think that those are bands that I discovered while I was waiting for the gimme shelter type stuff, you know, right. that, that, uh, classic rock radio fed me this, this, um, you know, menu of, of all of this music, most of which I didn't really care about, but I sort of internalized, um, and now a generation older, um, it comes back to me. And even though I never actively embraced it, it still has this autobiographical resonance, I think. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, and I write about that in the book, The, you know, that, you know, I'd be waiting to hear like Born to Run or Iron Man and or Won't Get Fooled Again. And while you're waiting for that, you had to hear all these sort of like faceless Midwestern arena rock bands, you know, playing like you know, sort of these like pomp synth semi prog rock riffs, you know, like Kansas and and uh, Aria Speedwagon and Sticks and you know, all those bands that you mentioned. And I have a similar experience where like, I hated those bands as a kid, but I have a lot more affection for them now because I just absorbed their music. I think part of it, too, is also like if you like classic rock, you are encouraged to sort of explore music that uh, wasn't maybe loved at the time because – you know, there's something about like Exile on Main Street or Pet Sounds, like these sort of canonical albums that have been over discussed at this point. Like every corner of those records has been analyzed by now. And they're great albums, but in a way it's kind of more fun to go back to stuff that was maligned and not taken very seriously and try to find something that is maybe worthwhile. You know, and I think that's why you end up seeing so many bands and albums from the past be re-examined because it, it really is kind of the only way to find sort of quote new music, you know, in an old catalog. Yeah. This know? is, this is what you call the good, bad album, right? Yeah. Um, sort of this archeological rediscovery um, of bands that have ceased to make new music. You can, you can go back to their maligned albums and find, find things, you know, almost, almost like a, an indie snob and find lesser known songs that lesser known songs that are actually pretty good. You know, I, I write about this in my book. Like there's a similar thing with Paul McCartney in his record Ram from 1971, which um, is an album where if you talk to indie bands now, like that record's revered as just being like a great seventies Paul McCartney record. But at the time people just dismissed it as, as, as garbage, you know, that he was, you know, slumming it and writing these doodles and, you know, not the, you know, that, and not like the fully formed pop masterpieces that he had done with, um, with the Beatles. And uh, someone from Rolling Stone asked Paul McCartney about this. I, Cause I guess like, like Paul McCartney's nephew or something said, Ram is like my favorite record you've ever done. And McCartney was like, Oh, I thought that was just sitting on the scrap heap. You know, like, like critics destroyed that record in the early seventies, but, you know, people come back to it and now and it's like, oh, this sounds like indie rock, you know, like this record makes sense now uh, for us uh, you know, because it's like in a different context now. It's like at the time people didn't like it because they were coming off the Beatles and people were expecting Paul McCartney 
to make Abbey Road. And Ram isn't Abbey Road, so it was a disappointment at the time. But subsequent generations don't have that kind of baggage, so it ends up being different, you know, and looked at differently. Well, it's interesting how attached we are to certain expectations and certain narratives. Um, and I want to touch on Bob Dylan's Christian phase real quick, but I sort of have a theory that, well, actually, I'll, I'll just throw it out, um, but I'll ask a fairly convoluted question first. Years ago, you, uh, I think in an Alternative Nation article, you wrote about the, the grunge documentary Hype. Um, yeah. And you talked about the amount of time that was spent sort of grunge people talking about how they weren't really grunge and they were tired of having this narrative superimposed on them and certain stereotypes coming to stand for grunge. Weirdly enough, I was living in Portland when that was being filmed and I remember being in the audience and the camera crew sort of of that very film was seeking out the stereotyped people, you know, the people wearing their polo shirts and their their sports jerseys were not getting camera time, the people who looked um, visibly alternative were. So even in a documentary that was trying to push back against the idea of stereotypes, it felt to me that they were still looking for shorthand uh, or else right. it, it wouldn't represent grunge. And so I wonder if part of the reason why the the, the Bob Dylan Christian phase is was not just a flop of sorts, but people don't even like to, some people don't even like to talk about it. I wonder if it's just because it doesn't fit the narrative that, 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 having Christian music, if you're a rock star, is so unrock that um, that was the problem people had with it. So that that's my theory. So do you, how much of that do you think was narrative and how much it, was it the music that Bob Dylan was making as a Christian? I mean, I think the lyrical content, you know, probably turned a lot of people off because, you know, the thing with Dylan for the longest time and, you know, even now is people looking at his lyrics and trying to figure out what he's talking about, you know, the, the sort of interpretive angle of, of, of listening to his music. And that's such a fascinating way to listen to Dylan because there really is no right answer to that. You know, everyone has their different theories on, on what his lyrics mean. And the difference with the, with the Christian era is that there was really no ambiguity at all. Like he was directly preaching to people and, and saying in no uncertain terms that if you do not accept Jesus, that you're going to hell. So, like, you know, in, in this comparison just occurred to me, but I mean, I think it's similar in a way to like what's happening with Kanye West right now, where so many fans are just in disbelief that he's like wearing Make, a, make America Great Again hats and rubbing shoulders with alt right people. You know, it feels like a portrayal for him to be doing that. Even though, you know, it's like, is Bob Dylan or Kanye West, are these like great political thinkers? Are they, you know, like, are these, I mean, should we be looking at them that way? Or, you know, you know, maybe, maybe this is more of a thing of us putting too much stock in these people. Um, I don't know. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, because like musically, he had a great band at that time. I think the music, and, and like Slow Train Coming actually sold really well and like gonna serve somebody was was a hit i think it won him his first grammy even hmm. but so like that record was like actually fairly mainstream and did well and he recorded it with um um jerry wexler uh who you know was a big you know he's famous for producing aretha franklin it was actually like a really well-produced album 
you know, especially in comparison to like a lot of Bob Dylan records, which are sort of indifferently produced, you know, to put it, uh, to put it nicely. Um, so he did have some commercial success at that time, but I think again, like just his live shows and, and he also refused to play any of his old songs for a long time. He only played religious material. So I think that also drove people away. I mean, I think at some point he started playing his old songs because people just weren't showing up to his shows anymore. And he realized like, I got to play like a Rolling Stone or I'm going to, you know, not gonna, I'm not going to be able to make a living anymore. Um, that's a tension that exists now. I mean, you have a lot of really old touring acts out there um, who are performing sort of on the, the unspoken assumption that they're going to be playing their, their greatest hits. You know, um, yeah. I, I went to the U2 Joshua Tree concert last year and it was very much about, I, I loved the show, but it was, a, it was sort of about me at age 17 as much as me at age 46 or whatever. And I, I'm curious if you um, have a moment that you recall where rock and roll suddenly felt like older people music? Because I have one, and I'm curious to know what you think of it and if you can identify an earlier moment. But when the Rolling Stones did their Steel Wheels tour in 1989, I was a senior in high school. And I don't, I'm not sure if it's that they just hadn't toured recently, but there was a, there was a little bit of ridicule attached to it. Like, um, like it, the humorous Dave Barry at the year's end um, talked about how during Honky Talk Woman, you know, drummer Charlie Watts would take out his teeth and hurl them into the audience. You know, there was there was just sort of this sense that there was something slightly absurd about the Rolling Stones going on tour. And when I look back on that, I think Charlie Watts was like 48 years old, and I'm almost 48 year old, years old now, and I still feel, still feel a lot younger than these bands that are touring, such as Black Sabbath, who I saw in New York a couple years ago. Um, so... What would you pinpoint as a big turning point when rock came to be seen as an old genre? And and what do you make of all these older acts touring now? Well, I mean, it. I mean, classic rock always seemed like older people music to me. I mean, I think I came up in an era where classic rock and, and new rock, in a way, were in competition. You know, as much as they were connected in terms of the continuum you know, like radio kind of split rock into two different things where uh, younger bands were kind of competing with these older bands, at least on the road, you know. Um, so, but like the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan and Neil Young, I mean, some of my friends liked that stuff, but like a lot of them didn't. I mean, like a lot of, you know, and I was like, I would hang out with my friends and we'd listen to like Green Day and The Offspring and, you know, all that stuff. And they didn't really care about Bob Dylan or, or Led Zeppelin. You know, I write about this in the book. I mean, one thing that is fascinating to me is that like when I listen to Led Zeppelin now, it's kind of the same experience that I had as a kid. Like I'm aware that Robert Plant is now almost 70 years old. But when I picture Led Zeppelin in my head, I picture the band as they were in the seventies. And I do that with the Rolling Stones too, you know, even though again, like they're, they're still active and I, I know Mick Jagger 75, but like in my head, he's, you know, in his late twenties, it's like 1969. Whereas like a band like Pearl Jam, who I've listened to my, you know, for their whole existence, basically when I see them, like I see Eddie Vedder as a man in his fifties. Hmm. You know, and the difference is, is that I've grown up with Pearl Jam. I've grown up with like Weezer 
and all those 90s bands. Like, they have gone along the path with me. But, like, those classic rock bands, in a way, like, they're not human to me. They're not, like, real people to me. They're almost like fictional characters. And one thing, you know, we're touching on these performers and bands that are fairly still complete, but one of the things you touch on is the idea of, of shrunk groups, which is your term for the opposite of supergroups. And one thing that occurred to me is the ship of Theseus conundrum, um, that as these bands get old, ship of Theseus, Theseus uh, conundrum, in case my um, listeners don't know, is that when you preserve an old Greek warship and then the planks start to rot and you replace them, pretty soon you're going to have a ship that's shaped like the old warship, but doesn't have any of the original planks. Could these live acts outlive their original members? Like, what, what's what's the what's the uh, what's the rule by which we judge authenticity when an old act is touring with a lot of non-original members? Well, the, to address the shrunk groups thing, I was I was writing about what's been happening with a lot of older bands, which is it seems like they're almost melting together. You know where. You know, like there was this idea of supergroups in the 60s and 70s where you would take really famous musicians and put them together. Like Cream is like the first supergroup or Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young would be another supergroup. Now you see these instances where you have to find a replacement just to keep going. You know, it's not necessarily to like, you know, come together and make like a really great record or you know to, to do something you know artistically that's never been done before it's to keep brands alive and the examples i write about are like acdc hiring axel rose in 2016 and going on tour or um you know the surviving members of the grateful dead hiring john mayer as far as the authenticity question i mean i think in classic rock anyway that question was answered a long time ago because there are so many instances of people, you know, leaving bands, prominent members and subbing in somebody else and, and the band just keeps going, you know, whether again, ACDC hiring Brian Johnson after Bon Scott dies and they make their biggest record ever in uh, uh, back in black or, you know, Pink Floyd losing Sid Barrett and then Roger Waters taking over the band and then they're bigger than ever. And then Roger Waters leaves and then David Gilmore takes it over and they still continue to play stadiums after that. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting question about what will happen to these bands after no one is around anymore. I mean, right. I, 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 I talk about this a little at the end of the book, you know, because I mean, the fact is that I don't know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm curious to see what happens. But I mean, what we're seeing now is, um, you know, I write about this band called Joe Russo's Almost Dead which is a Grateful Dead tribute band, basically, that includes people that have played with members of the Grateful Dead and various side projects. And they are an incredibly successful band. I mean, they play, they headline Red Rocks in Colorado, you know, which is something a lot of indie rock bands will, could never do, you know. And they, uh, you know, they're really good at what they do. And there's a lot of bands like that, sort of in the Grateful Dead camp, and it seems like the dead have almost like the members of the Grateful Dead have almost trained their successors in a way, people that will continue to play the music and, and sort of treat the Grateful Dead almost like the blues, you know, like how 60s bands took the blues as a starting point and they created a new kind of music from that. It seems like almost 
that could be like what these bands are doing after the Grateful Dead is gone. There's also the matter of hologram tours, which I don't really write about that much, but like, I feel like I just wonder like in the 2020s, how big that might become because right now it's sort of a grotesque thing where people are very queasy about it. You know, like Justin Timberlake got crucified because people thought he might've been, he might've used the Prince hologram in the super super bowl halftime show and he ended up not doing it, but it was like a big controversy. But I really feel like all it takes is for one person to do it. Well, you know, there has to be like one really great hologram tour where people see it and they go, wow, that was really cool. And then all of a sudden we're going to see like 20 of them, you know, and it could, you know, I, I wonder if that will become like, if that's the next frontier for some of this stuff. Cause like Mike love of the beach boys has talked about that. Having a hologram version of the beach boys, Frank Zappa is a state. They're going to do a Frank Zappa hologram tour with like a holograms, Frank Zappa and like his backing musicians. Um, It'll be interesting to see what is what is embraced and what is accepted. Like in the year 2047, would people rather see a hologram performance or a version of The Grateful Dead where John Mayer is the most authentic member and everybody else was born in the year 2010? You know, like what what actually, how do these bands go forward? Or they should they just die away, you know? Well, I mean, you know, again, getting back to the mythology idea, you know, it, I mean, there's that argument you could make, I guess, in terms of sort of like the, the artistic purity argument saying like, well, you know, if, if, if the people that made the music aren't around, then it should just go away. But, you know, they didn't say that about Mozart or Bach, you know, like that music continued on people. Other people performed it. It was there was value taken in it, uh, value seen in it from future generations. Um I don't know if like the Beatles are the new Bach or, you know, if this stuff will live on like that. But, you know, if if people want to hear it and there's an audience out there that's going to buy a ticket for it, then it's going to be really hard to argue against that. You know, and like Dead and Company, the John Mayer Grateful Dead band. I mean, they played Fenway Park. You know, they played multiple nights at Wrigley Field. I mean, they're a stadium rock band. You know, there's a lot of people that like to hear Grateful Dead music and like all the rituals around it. And they don't want to give it up. And they feel like, well, this band sounds good. And I like these songs. And so why not do it? You know, and that's a hard thing to argue against. It's hard to argue against people enjoying music. You know, like if they're having fun and it sounds good, uh, it's hard to kind of swoop in and say, no, you shouldn't be doing this, you know? Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, like that scenario you talk about, it might be both. It might be, there might be a John Mayer band playing Grateful Dead songs and there might be the hologram band that you go see in Vegas. You know, you might have both options, (laughs) who knows? Um, but I think future generations are going to be less squeamish about some of this stuff because it's going to be the only option they have. You know, Jerry Garcia has been dead for 20 years now. There's a lot of younger Grateful Dead fans who never even had the the option of seeing him. So it's like, well, if this is the best option, you know, I guess I'll go check it out. Yeah. I I guess it will be the, the market will tell us what, what is, uh, embraced and accepted down the line. I'm, I'm curious, your book has been out for a while. 
Um, and you mentioned that you've been doing some touring. And I think it's always interesting when a book is written about a kind of popular culture. I had a friend who wrote a book about um, 80s teen movies, and everybody wanted to ask him about Stranger Things when he was on tour. Um, so I'm curious about what kind of questions you're getting. For example, I noticed there wasn't a lot of Rush in your book. Um, <laughs> and that's like I had a Rush poster on my wall back in the day. I mean, there was, there was fish instead of Rush. So I think there is something very subjective about how we all embrace corporate rock, even though it had a fairly standard slate of bands. So are people asking where the hell is Rush? What kind of, what kind of response is the book getting? Um, yeah, I I haven't had a, no one's asked me about Rush actually, which is a, a surprise. I mean, you know, like my one of my big regrets is that Queen isn't in the book more because uh, I love Queen and I actually plan on putting Queen in the book and it was just one of those things like where as the chapters were coming together and like there was a story formulating in the book, you know, it was I just couldn't shoehorn them in you know it was like and i didn't have like a great take on them beyond sort of the obvious things that you would say about about queen i mean i actually did this thing in the acknowledgments where i listed a bunch of bands where i said like i wish i could have written more about these bands you know there's bands in the book that i like less than queen but i wrote about them because i felt like they were maybe more archetypal to the story i was telling you know like i like queen more than the eagles for instance but the eagles i felt like i had to write about um and i had and i had more to say about them strangely um as far as like what people are asking about um you know it's it's funny it's like all over the map i mean i feel like um it's been cool because i feel like people take different things from it and not necessarily the things i would have expected um like when I was writing the book, I felt like it was kind of depressing, especially the second half. I because I, to me the book is has a lot to do with death and mortality and realizing that the things that you think will be eternal when you're a kid aren't, you know. And I think that's a realization that we all come to as we get older. This is the transitory nature of life. Um, even things that are around for for centuries, you know. We everything eventually, you know, everything comes to an end, and I don't think that the end of classic rock, uh, you know, is imminent necessarily, you know, because again, I think that it remains to be seen how this music lives on after the musicians are gone. But you know, it, I think it is worth sort of noting the passing of an era in terms of that generation of people that were just kind of starting to witness. Um, and just these sort of like iconic people that like, again, to me just seemed almost like architecture, you know, like, like the empire state building or something like you, you just can't imagine them ever going away. Drawing on what you were just talking about, uh, you know, the idea of transience, I just wonder, and it, it almost feels like your book, if you hadn't have written this book, somebody would have had to write a book that addresses how old classic rock has gotten. Yeah. Um, Hip hop now is an old genre too. I mean, it's twenty years younger than rock, but it's getting older. Will do you think hip hop will have its own moment? I mean, is this just an inevitability for every type of of popular music that happens, or is there something uniquely unique to classic rock in the way that it was kind of prescribed and and uh, directly generational? I don't know. It's interesting the, the the relationship between hip hop and rock music. 
is very interesting because in a way they've been positioned as binaries in a binary relationship. And you can see this in how people write about how now, like in the Spotify era, I mean, I mean, hip hop has been dominant for a long time, but like now it's like especially dominant. And a lot of times people will sort of position that as like the death of rock because, because, because hip hop is doing really well. That must mean that rock is dying or, or dead. And I mean, the, the difference I think with hip hop and rock is that like hip hop in a way wasn't assimilated in the same way that rock music was like rock music was totally absorbed by white people basically, you know, and like white people kind of took over the gatekeeping of rock music in a way where it locked out a lot of black artists who you could have called rock. And in hip hop, the gatekeepers have either remained black or at least they have, um, they're, they're more respectful of, of black culture. It's interesting when, when hip hop was asserting itself in the nineties, it was so geographically specific, you know, it's like the authenticity didn't come out of Los Angeles. It came out of Compton. Right. Right. Um, and so that was, I think that was one way of, of asserting the blackness of, of hip hop, you know, which is probably the first big 20th century, uh, popular form that didn't get completely assimilated. Uh, but now I think maybe the conversation will, obviously there was a time at which rock gave itself permission to be old. Um, and maybe hip hop will have to make a similar decision. Well, I think with rock too, you know, going back to the assimilation thing, it's like rock in a way is like so pervasive now, like where it's really hard for people to put a finger on what rock music even is, you know, because I think there are large swaths of pop and country music, certainly that you could call rock music, but they're not called that. They're, 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 it, and, and really what happened with rock music, I feel like it almost got like classified to death in a way or not classified to death, but like overclassified. Like there's so many different subgenres and that totally filtered down to the audience where like, you know, like metal fans won't call metal bands, rock bands, they're metal bands or, you know, punk fans won't call their won't call their favorite bands rock bands. They're punk bands. Or, you know, there's a lot of country music that is essentially Southern rock music, but it's called country music. And it just gets hard to look around and see what a rock band is because we call so many different things something else. You know, if we called Chris Stapleton a rock star, it might change the way that we look at rock music, you know, because he's a huge star who sells a lot of records. But, um, he wears a country hat and a duster, a cowboy hat and a duster. So he's a country singer or Eric church being someone else who I think could clearly be a heartland rocker, but he's a country singer uh, because he has a Southern accent. Um, so that's part of that too. Um, but yeah, I think with hip hop, you know, again, like there's every generation has their own stars and it seems like after about, you know, 10 years or so, it's kind of time to move on to the next person. Like Kanye West is like 40 years old and he still has a huge cultural uh, footprint, but you know, does he have the same impact with like 18 year olds as like a lot of these SoundCloud rappers? You know, I don't know. Like I'm not that age, so I wouldn't be the one to answer that question, but um, you know, you'll be curious to see in the years ahead. Like again, like if these, artists 
like like if you're not having pop success, if you can still be relevant in hip hop, I, I I think that remains to be seen. Do you think hip hop will require its own museum, or is all of this going to be Rock Hall of Fame stuff? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, um, you know, I don't know. It's like it's hard to advocate for like another museum, you know. But at the same time, it does seem weird that you know hip hop is sort of an adjunct to 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 rock music. I mean, and that kind of goes back to, again to the more ecumenical way that rock and roll used to be defined that like in the eighties, I think it was looked at as like a catch all term for pop music basically. And that's how the rock and roll hall of fame treats, um, you know, looks at itself basically. So there's a lot of artists in there who aren't necessarily like rock musicians, but they're, 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 they're popular music musicians. So they get in. Um, but it's really, that's really like one of the only contexts where people still talk about rock and roll in that way anymore. No one really uses the term rock and roll to mean like all of pop music. Um, you know, again, I mean, we're, we're so over categorized now that it's almost more about finding how things are different than, than how they're the same, which, um, some people really care about genre purity. I'm not one of those people. I, I tend to be more fascinated by what brings things together. Cause I think music isn't quite as different as we make it out to be. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Stephen Hyden's book, Twilight of the Gods, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviateatrolfpots.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. And this week, the original episode art was created by a listener, Alicia Ard, who does freelance illustration, branding, and web design work. You can find a link to her website in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.